Boom. Everybody say boom. boom. Yeah. All right, so this is, this is so cool. Now, what I'm about to share with you is a little esoteric. It's a little ethereal, but in God's world, it's actually factual. So uh, I may have mentioned to you um, a while back that the Lord woke me up with the phrase. I mean, like woke me out of a dead sleep. A big shift just, a big shift just took place. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was really positive. I journaled it and I told my staff, and I said, I don't know what it means, but I'm saying it because when things begin to open up, people start getting breakthroughs, whatever the big shift means, uh, I want to tie it right back to when God spoke this to me. And this year, little things that begin to crack open and things are starting to happen that have not happened in the past. Prayers that are being answered. Some of you have been hanging on for quite a while and things are beginning to happen. Not to the degree that I can really look at the manifestation of that word and say, see, but it's very interesting. Some things are really starting to break open. Uh, But here's the reason I'm bringing it up. A few weeks ago, our friend Martin, that was on the the percussionist from Britain, for those of you that were here, uh, he stood up and told a little story to the church. And then he said, my wife and I were here back in November and God spoke and said a big shift just took place in this region. And so we've stayed to see what that shift is. And he started naming a couple of things he's seen on a citywide scale. So then my sister, who's here in church this morning, everybody say, hello, Aunt Renee. Hey. All right. Or Renee or Sister Renee. Uh, I told her this a few days ago. I said, God told me that a big shift took place. And she didn't say anything to me. But yesterday she came to my house and she said, here's what I wrote in my journal. Last November, I was saying, God, things are different. I'm not sure what's going on here. What is it? And he said, a big shift has just taken place. So I thought, I'm going to see when God actually said that to me. So I grabbed my journal on my shelf and I opened it up and I showed it to her. In November, God said, a big shift just took place. So I just want to prophesy that today. And so this morning while we were in pre-service prayer, um, I said, well, what do we do with that? And there's a sense of sovereignty to it where we don't actually have to do anything other than, this is what I feel like the Lord said this morning, you've got to believe. You've got to agree with it by faith and prayer. Yes, Lord. Can anybody say that with me? Yes, Lord. I mean, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Three different independent sources all saying that God said the exact same thing in the same month of last year, a big shift has taken place. Now, when you think about it on a large scale... Um, I don't want to be foolish and try to define it until we all see it and then we can all define it together. But, you know, cities are ruled by the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. You can see this in the book, like in the book of Daniel, where the, princip- the principality of, um, of Greece was taken over by the prince of, uh, prince of Persia, was taken over by the prince of Greece. You see that in Daniel 10. So whole cities can actually be controlled in the spirit realm and then all the natural laws and the and the, all, all, the, all the manifestations that happen in a city first are happening in the unseen realm. So it's who is ever in control. So in my thinking, when he says the big shift has taken place, God's about to come to our city in ways maybe none of us have ever seen before. So I'm really, really excited about that. So I wanted to say this publicly at this point because it's been confirmed by two or three witnesses. And I just want to get it on record. And let's just watch. Amen. So, but having said that, and I want to pass it over to Mark, who's going to close out our series today on uh, one anothering one another. So let's welcome Mark Halpersmith as he comes and teaches. Amen. 
A man I know. This is your copy. Thank you. A man I know uh, as an acquaintance is a researcher and. um, Is his microphone on? It is. He's a researcher and he's spent the last. most of his life studying revivals in our present day all over the world. George Otis Jr. is his name. And some of you have seen the transformation videos. And uh, the number, I'm just going to cut to the chase, the number one factor in attracting a powerful move of God to a region is unity. It's, it's, It's unity and prayer. And we had a when we saw a move of God in our city uh, some years ago, we coined a phrase united in prayer, praying for unity within the church. When we love one another the way God designed us to love one another, it attracts his presence and it attracts his power and it attracts his blessing. So when we look at the one another verses, they seem very mundane to us and at times boring, you know. Love one another. Well, of course, who hasn't said that a couple thousand times? But when we actually take it seriously and begin to do it and have a culture of honor within our church, within our community, a culture of love, God is attracted to that and he comes and he doesn't visit. He abides. The spirit comes and goes. That's in manifestation. He never comes. He never leaves living inside of you. But he comes and goes in terms of the degree to which he makes his presence known. And we don't want visitations occasionally. We want abiding. And there's nothing that causes God. I shouldn't say cause because he's always free to do what he wants. There's nothing that attracts God to come and abide with us more than a community that reflects the kind of love he has within himself the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He feels at home where there's that kind of love. And he lets his hair down and he bees himself. And there's nothing better than the Holy Spirit being himself and God being himself. So unity and how we love one another is really the key. Now, interestingly, and I don't think, I know that John and I did not plan this. We just took the one another verses as we felt compelled to speak on them and we're knocking them down one or two at a time. There's only one left. And this is the hardest, the biggest nut to crack. This is the problem one another verse. And what's really interesting about it is that if we were to do all of the other one another verses well, this one wouldn't be hard. It's almost, in a sense, sort of dependent upon the existence and the operation of the rest of the one another verses. And here it is. Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the context for this verse, if you look at the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is unity. It is the context for this remark. Paul has reminded us that our unity comes from unity with Jesus and it's fueled directly by his amazing love for us. You can't have godly unity without godly power living inside of you. You can't do it in human effort. You do it because God has given you the ability to do it through his Holy Spirit living inside of you. It's a unity based on love and it's built and continued as we love one another. All the other one another verses, they foster a willingness to submit to one another. 
The word used here for uh, submission is the Greek word hupotasso, and it is a synonym for obedience. Here's the context that it appears in. Now, now watch these words. How many of them are one another verses? Ready? Servanthood. Serve one another. Humility. Honor one another. Respect one another. Reverence one another. Honor. Be teachable. Be open to correction. This is just another way when they say, when the Bible says we're to submit to one another, this is another way of saying doing all those other things. But in addition, there's this concept of obedience, which is added on to it. It's a military term. It means to be under or to rank under or to be subject to. Now, although it's a military term, it's not militaristic in our community. Here's the difference. If you are in the military, you must submit. If you don't submit, you're going to spend time in the stockade until you change your attitude. That's just the way it is. But in the church, in our community, you're not forced to do anything. God doesn't force you to do anything. He wants to touch your heart, so you desire to do it. I, don't, I didn't see this movie, but there was a Vince, Vince Vaughn movie with some chick. And they're having a... Di- I'm from the 60s. That's not, a, that's not a negative term. That's a good thing. She's a chick. Okay. Anyway, there's some young girl and they're sort of in love, but the marriage isn't going very well and they're fighting. All I saw was the trailer of the movie, but I've never forgotten it. They're fighting over something like doing the dishes. And he says, what are you complaining about? I did the dishes when you asked me to. And she said, it's not that I wanted you to want to do the dishes. You see, it always comes down to a matter of the heart. God doesn't just want us to love one another like we have to, like it's some nasty burden. He wants us to want to. And the wanting to, deep inside, that's a work of God. So we don't have to love one another and we don't have to submit to one another. We don't have to do anything. But with his love inside, we'll find ourselves wanting to. There's the difference. Now, this whole subject of submission is really frustrating because in my experience, it's the hardest thing for most of us to do. But here's the here's the thing. It wasn't always like that. Obedience, submission to authority, mutual submission. It's almost foreign to us. It's like it's not part of our culture. Well, the fact is, it isn't part of our culture anymore. It used to be. Do you know that there, there were times in our culture where submission was absol- absolutely expected and normal? Do you know that all over the world today, particularly in non-Western cultures, submission to authority is an absolute given? No one would think of doing anything else? You know, we've all heard those stories of tribes, particularly in Africa, where the leader, the chief, becomes a Christian, and the next day all the whole tribe becomes Christians? And I always thought, you know, that's got to be bogus. Because I'm thinking about the issue of faith through the eyes of individualism. And I'm saying to myself, that can't be possible. How can a person make a genuine, free, wholehearted commitment to changing their whole whole worldview of who God is just because some old man in the village decided to? 
And I'm thinking, these poor people, they're essentially sheep. They don't think for themselves. This can't be a real conversion. This is just, you know, some evangelistic uh, organization padding their statistics or something. Because I'm seeing the entire issue through the eyes of our individualistic culture. Not understanding that our individualistic culture is an aberration in human history. Most of human history was not like that. Most of human history was tribal and communal and familial. So that there was such a degree of respect within that tribe, within that community, within that family, whatever, that when the person you trusted to lead you said, this is what I'm going to believe, everyone else said, good enough for me. And they do. And it's a genuine and real conversion. Because their sense of community is stronger than their sense of individuality. And so they go with the community decision. Can you, can you understand? Like, it's almost, guys, it's, I know it's almost impossible for us to understand. But it's legitimate is what I'm saying. It really is the way these cultures work. And to, one, uh, to a greater degree, it was the way our culture once worked. We have a big problem. The problem is that the people who raised us grew up in the 60s. The people who are parenting now grew up in the 60s. And let me tell you something. Life was different before the 60s. The music wasn't as good. (laughs) Heck no. But it was different. Do you know what the biggest problem was in my school when we grew up? In, in, in middle school and high school, the number one behavioral problem in our school? Chewing gum. Chewing gum. That was, that was letting your freak flag fly. That, that, that was taking, drawing a line in the sand and saying, I'm rebelling. See? Do you know that when I was in uh, seventh to ninth grade, on the way to adulthood, When you walked down the hall between classes, there were two lines. On one side of the hall was the girls' line, and the other side of the hall was the boys' line, and you didn't talk to each other when you went to your next class. And you didn't step out of that line. Do you know how I know about those lines and what they mean to me? Because I was in my science class being taught by a guy who taught science, but he was also the phys ed teacher. He was really, really big. I was the littlest kid in the school at this point. And the way I coped with being the littlest kid in the school was I had a big mouth and a wicked sense of humor. (laughs) Lewis said, thank God that's changed. Well, it hasn't, actually. And we all know that. So anyway, I was cutting up in class and he'd finally had enough. And it was right at the end of the class. In fact, the buzzer went off for us to leave, but he was so mad at me, literally, he, I, he, I stood up to leave and he came over and he grabbed me physically from behind and he put his big arm, and I'm like this big and he's like this big, he put his big arm around my chest and he picked me up off the ground and he walked over to the door and he opened it and kicked open the door with his foot and then he threw me and kicked me <laughs> into the line of girls that was on the other side of the hall. I landed in the line of... And nothing's more embarrassing than being a football in a girl's game. You know, like they're walking along and this little guy shoots out of this class and slams into the line. Yes, there was rebellion in the 50s, but look how we dealt with it. We 
teed him up and punted him. I wasn't going to get away with that. That's the, listen, guys, that's the world that existed before now. There was, there was respect for authority. And then the 60s came along and bred into us a spirit of rebellion. And now it is absolutely normal. In fact, we think it's strange if people don't distrust authority. There's been a 180, and it's in one generation. And it's now the atmosphere that we breathe. It's the glasses that we're wearing to see reality. So we can't even understand the concept of a culture in which the chief could make a decision for Jesus and the whole tribe says amen. All this to say, we have been bred and conditioned by our culture in the last 50 to 60 years to be a people who distrust authority and whose default position is rebellion. So when the Bible comes along and starts talking about submission, it's as if it is speaking a foreign language. Now, there's one problem that takes us even further into difficulty, and that's that the act of submission comes directly in defiance of our personal pride. And we are a proud people. We are a proud people because pride is our default position. It's just the way we are. And submission comes <laughs> direct, directly in a collision course with our pride. We're, we are fighting pride when we submit. Every time you choose to submit, at the deepest level, you're fighting pride. So it's really hard. Now, here's, here's an even deeper reason why it's difficult. Submission is also difficult because it is the ultimate act of trust. To genuinely submit to another person in your life is to trust them with yourself, with your worth, with your dignity, with your value, with your position, with your future, with your dreams. When you submit to another person, you become vulnerable to them. You can be hurt, you can be rejected, you can be humiliated. Your worth is now in the hands of another person. It is extremely hard to take this risk. The fact is, and I don't think I'm overstating it, it is almost humanly impossible to do that. That level of trust. And to that I say, thank God for God. Because apart from him, I don't think I could take that risk. So here's the question. In your life, what would make it possible to take a risk like putting your worth in the hands of another person? What would make it possible to do that? Let's use our imaginations for a minute. Imagine you had a person in your life who believed in you. 
Imagine you had a person in your life who always encouraged you, who was always there when you needed him, who no matter what you did wrong, he was always happy to see you and to welcome you, who always forgave you even when you intentionally hurt him. What if there was someone in your life who loved you more than his own life? Someone who gave you worth without limit. If you had someone like that in your life, do you think you could take the risk of submission? If you had someone like that in your life, you could risk your worth with other people because you know that your real worth comes from someone who will always value you and who will always love you. And you have that person in your life. Having someone like that, being loved like that, would empower a life of radical, risking obedience. And that's really what submission is. It's radical, risking obedience. Does anyone in this room have someone like that in their life? I mean, isn't he wonderful? I mean, he's just... I think about it, you know. There's a lot of things I do he doesn't approve of. And I don't expect him to. Because you know what? I don't either when I think back. But he never stops accepting me. Ever. His, ex- his approval is not conditional on his acceptance. And his acceptance isn't conditional upon his approval. His love is unchanging no matter what you do. He goes on accepting you even when you mess up. That doesn't mean he approves of it. It doesn't mean he says keep on doing it. In fact, he says... Go sin no more. That story of the the woman caught in adultery. What a story. She's dead to right. She's absolutely wrong. She's caught in the act. The law says kill her. Jesus finds a way to save her life because he genuinely loves her. And all he says to her is, go and sin no more. He doesn't say anything to judge her. He just says, well, who's here to condemn you? Well, nobody. They've all left. Well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. There are no conditions on his acceptance. There are conditions on his approval. He can't approve of that which is wrong. But so what? He doesn't stop accepting you. Isn't that amazing? Listen, in view of that kind of love and acceptance, the more you know that kind of love and acceptance, the more you can take the risk of allowing other people to lead you. The more you can take the the risk of of allowing other people to correct you. The more you can submit. Because ultimately, your worth doesn't depend on how those people treat you. Your worth depends on your relationship with Him. His love makes us genuinely free in our relationships with the rest of the world. And until we know His love, we are not free in our relationships with the rest of the world. We are guarded and defensive, and rightfully we should be, because you can't trust everyone to be like Him. But because of Him, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, isn't that just wonderful? Your worth is not an issue with Him. Therefore, no one else can take it from you. Yes, that's real freedom. When he says it's for freedom, you were set free. He's talking about that as much as anything else. 
freedom from your sin, but also freedom from your shame. And the consequence of this is that you can openly submit to others because ultimately your worth is not in their hands. Your worth is in his hands. Thank you, Mary. It's the truth. Next slide. Next slide. The fact is, the closer your relationship with Jesus, the easier it is to submit to people. You want to be truly free? Get close to Him. And so this same guy, Jesus, who loves us like this, calls us to submit to one another. Because He knows it's okay. Because He's taking care of us. His love is enough. Hey, I mean, didn't we just sing that? You're all I need. I mean, you're all I need. Bottom line, Jesus, you're all I need. For my peace, for my worth, for my happiness, for my belonging, for my future, for my dreams, for healing my past, you're all I need. So because of that, I can take risks that I would never, ever take any other way. So he calls us to relationships in which we voluntarily submit to others. What are they? Number one, young men to older men. I like this. This is a, what I call a handy little verse. Respect old men. They don't have much time left. All the members of the body to obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Yeah, that's in there. Three, servants to your masters, employees to your bosses, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're right or wrong in their choices, they're your boss. Respect them. Obey them. And God says it will go well with you. I will take care of their mistakes. You submit to them because I told you to, and I will save you from their foolishness. Children to your parents. Hello? There's a, there's a good one. All of us to our governmental authorities, and these are not Christian government. You, you don't obey when the president happens to be a Christian. You obey because he's the president. Whether he's a good one or a bad one, you do it anyway. Wives to your husbands. Got creepy all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's really in there. I don't think that's what the Greek says. Let's just skip that. Okay, so there's all this stuff about submission, and it's really scary, frankly. I mean, it's really scary. But what about those we're supposed to submit to? What does God say to them? Because it's a two-way street, you know. It's not just about submitting. It's about how you lead. It's about how you care for the people who are submitting to you. What does God say about that? Do they get to lord it over us? Are they the big bosses? What kind of leadership is biblical leadership? What do we call it? Servant leadership. What's a servant leader do? A servant leader cares about the welfare of the people he's leading more than he cares about his own welfare. Fathers are to sacrifice for their families. I was in conversation with my next door neighbor. We play cards every Tuesday night. And uh, he cooks, and I win at cards. So it's a really good deal. (laughs) And, you know, he's an atheist, and and, uh, 
he makes a lot of fun of me and, and we were arguing about something. And he said, oh, yeah, uh, the way the Bible treats women. And I said, well, how does the Bible treat women? And he said, well, wives, submit to your husbands. And I said, you know, it's so handy for you to have a tiny little understanding of the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it really does you a lot of good. But if you'd read the thing, I, I tend to get a little angry in these discussions. I said, if you'd read the thing, you would have read the context and the rest of the remarks about wives submitting to their husbands. And his eyes are going big and he's looking at me like there's more. Yes, it's a thick book. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, my friend, it's more than wives submit to your husbands on every page. In that very context, there's this. Husbands are to, quote, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means, husbands, you are to lay your lives down for the welfare of your wives ahead of your own, even to the point of death. Hello? Now, if you were a smart, logical person and you could pick your gender based on these two verses, wives submit to your husbands or lay your life down for your wife unto the death, since California is now allowing us to choose our gender, which one would you pick? I mean, come on. I know which one I'd pick. I want to see him die for me. Come on. Like, if you're smart, you say, I don't think I want to be the man. Heavy burden. See, guys, you can't look at the you can't look at the verses about submission without looking at the verses about leaders responsibility and how they lead. It's a two way street. Now, the fact that a leader doesn't lead well doesn't mean you can opt out and say, yeah, well, you know, 16 years ago, one time in church, he hurt my feelings, so I don't ever have to submit to him again. Yeah, God says, submit to him and I'll take care of you. But God has more to say in the Bible about how leaders lead than how people submit. He cares that his sheep are well cared for and loved. See, Even in leadership, there is submission and servanthood. And we measure our greatness in the kingdom of God by our servanthood. Leaders are measured when they get to heaven and how they loved you as they led. Heavy burden. Now let's come to the verse, because this really is the point that we started with. There is one more area in which we're to submit to one another, and it's this verse in Ephesians 5. We're to submit to one another. After all these other areas and and, uh, relationships in which submission takes place, leadership and followership, there is this weird verse. We're to submit to one another. What does that mean? Because there's no roles defined here. Husband, wife, boss... Employee, uh, father, children, police officer, whatever. There's no roles here. This is just like us. Submit to one another. Now, that can't mean do what everybody else in the room says, because that would be chaos, wouldn't it? Person A would tell you to do this, and person B would tell you not to, and if you had to submit to everybody, you're stuck. What am I supposed to do? So it's not about... That kind of submission. But Paul's calling us and God is calling us 
to have a certain kind of attitude towards one another, which could be described as submission. And here's where I think it comes up the most. We all submit to one another. We do this when we allow each other to speak correction to us. It's an openness to correction where I'm okay hearing it from another person and I'm not going to respond defensively. Well, I am going to respond defensively to you and it will last a day. And then in my next prayer time in the morning, God will show me I'm an idiot and I reacted defensively and that's wrong. And then I will phone you and say, I'm sorry for the way I reacted. Uh, Would you like to say that again? And then I'll take it back to God and he and I will talk about what you told me and I will say, Lord, convict me. What, 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 What have I done wrong here? And he will convict me and then I will phone you and say, this is what the Lord showed me. I'm sorry. For that only, not the rest. <laughs> well, at least I took it to him. When we listen and we take people's comments seriously, we're submitting to them. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean that they're dead right. It means we're considering it. We're willing to take it back and think about it. We're willing to take it to the Lord and say, Lord, what if this is true? They told me ten ways I'm an idiot. I don't think that's right. And the Lord comes back and says, nine. All right, now I've heard the truth. Now I can make changes. Now, this is why this kind of submission is so difficult. There's no position of authority in which the person speaks. You see, positional authority has a right to speak because God created the position. But when it's just your peers, when it's just some friend that comes to you and says, hey, you know, I, I feel a little awkward about this, but, you know, when you did this at Connect Group, uh, this is what happened and this is how I felt. And, and, and I, you know, do you want to apologize? No. People in biblical positions of authority, they have the mantle of authority behind them before they speak. But your Christian friend has no such position. So why take them seriously? By what right is she allowed to say these corrective things to me? Why should I listen to her? Why should I listen to him? They're nobody around here. They don't have a position. They're just one of us. But you know that this is the ultimate test of humility. And it's the greatest assault to our pride when we're willing to be corrected by someone who doesn't have a right to say a thing that they're saying to us. No positional authority. They're just saying it because it's on their heart. And that really takes an openness to hear that. Are you with me? One time, this is years ago, I played in a band with this guy. We were both Christians. And um, he'd been doing some things that I didn't think were right. And uh, we're driving down the road in his car, and he's driving. And I said, Rob, I, w- I want to talk to you about something. And he says, what? And I started going into it. And he got really mad. And he turns to me and he says, you've got all sorts of things that are wrong in your life. I, I could right now, he says, I could list five or six things that are wrong in your life. He says, what gives you the right to correct me? And I, it must have been the Lord. I don't know. It must have been the Lord. I turned to him. I said, well, it's your turn. I meant it. I said, it's your turn. And he looks at me. I said, in a minute, when your turn's over, you can do me. Like, I'm cool with that. I'm going to give you my turn and tell you what I think. And and you then you can. It's only fair. And, you know, he just just like that. I mean, the, the air went out of the balloon and he said, "Okay, what is it? 
And I said, well, Rob, this and this and this. And we had a great talk. And we were done. I said, do you want to come after me? And he said, no, later. <laughs> but he was storing it, you know, like, well, I got one chance here. I'm going to save it till it's good. <laughs> till I really need it. See, guys, this is how it works when we love one another. This is how it works. It's how it should work with husbands and wives and friends. You can correct me. I won't always agree with you, but you can always correct me. And I'm going to try really hard not to be defensive. And believe me, not being defensive is hard. I know it's hard. It's your first and natural reaction. But we've got to get beyond that. We just have to get beyond that. Make sense? Okay, let's close our eyes and ask the, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to, um, to speak to us now. Okay, just close your eyes and, and we're, I'm going to ask you this question and see what comes to mind. In your life, uniquely for you, why is it hard to receive correction? What's coming to mind? Why is it hard for me to receive correction? What emotions are rising up as you think about that? Why do you think? Lord, why is it hard? Please show us. Why is it hard for me to receive correction? The second question, what would make it easier? What do I need that would make it easier to receive correction? What do you need from the Lord? What do you need from your Father God that would make it easier to receive correction? What do you need to, what do you need to know from him? What do you need to feel? What do you need to take that risk? Why do, I, why do I feel the need to defend myself? Where's that coming from? Lord, please show us. Why do I feel the need to defend myself? Lord, do I have to? Jesus, what's the alternative if I don't defend myself and I just listen? Where are you in that, Lord? What do you say about that? Lord, have I bought into a spirit of rebellion? Have I, have I just kind of accepted that as normal? 
Father, if I've bought into the spirit of our age and I'm letting it influence me, would you please show me how I'm, how I'm actually cooperating with that spirit? Finally, Lord, what do you want to say to me about submission? Directly to me, Lord, what do you want to say right now? What did he say? What did he say? Submit to God and then your leader's words. Huh? Fair enough. What did he say, guys? What did he say to us about? Just do it? <laughs> That's handy. Trust. What else? What did he say? You're right on. Submission brings freedom in a safe place. Because it actually brings you closer to him. It really, every time you submit, you're a little closer to Him. Even if you're submitting to someone who's wrong, you just stepped closer to Jesus. Isn't that cool? What else did He say? How's He applying this in our lives? This is really a good thing we're doing right now. Your identity is not in your performance. You know, when your identity is not in your performance, Josh, you can risk correction. Because your worth isn't in what you do, it's who you are and who you're with. It's not an embarrassment. It's not an embarrassment. It's not an embarrassment. What else? He's your protector. And that's really the bottom line. He's your protector. What else? My marriage would be better. Huh? My marriage would be better. Oh, yes. To every woman in this room, your marriage would be better if you submit it to your husband better, to every husband in this room, you will have the best marriage beyond your imagination if you begin to put her welfare ahead of your own and make decisions on what's best for her, at least a lot of the time. You'll find her so responsive. You see, women are by their... The, the nature of femininity is to respond. The nature of masculinity is to initiate with the creative use of power. When a man initiates with the creative use of power to bless and care for his wife, she finds herself automatically by her very nature responding to that initiation with respect. And believe me, when you get those two things going in a marriage, it's great. It's just great. What else? Hmm? I see it all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys, that's the Lord's really spoken and, and he's really applied this to our lives. So let's just say.